Welcome to the Toxin Terminator, helping people to restore and renew their health by removing the toxins from the home and their lives. Join in as industry thought leaders help you understand the physical and emotional effects these products can have on you and your family, and the safe alternatives you can use to remove the hidden toxins for renewed health. Now, please welcome your host, the Toxin Terminator herself, Amy Carlson. And welcome. I am so excited to have our next guest on the show. You know, there's a syndrome out there, and I don't know if you've all heard about it, but it's pans and pandas. And boy, do we have the expert going to be talking to you tonight. He is a board-certified physician in emergency medicine, functional medicine, and integrative medicine. He's known as the pandas doc. He has an incredible personal story that led him, I believe, down this journey of why he's known as the Pandas Doc, and I'm going to let him share that story. And I love that he's a veteran. We're all going to thank him and because he served our country. And there was something else. Oh, he's got a huge story about what he feels is kind of the problem, and I'm going to be asking for his tips and what we need to do to kind of change the whole realm of healthcare and how we can make it better. Because there's things as the patient that we can do that'll certainly help our physicians out. So welcome to the show, Dr. Scott Antoine. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. You bet. So I forgot to mention that he's also now got on his shirt collar the uh, lobbyist (laughs) claim. (laughs) He's up lobbying in the state house right now trying to get some really important legislation moved through. He's in Indiana and we've got a bill that has gone through committee. I know what this is all about. I've been in your shoes many times. So next stop is into the uh, full Senate. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And then the house and then it would go to the governor. Yep. We're trying to get those darn insurance companies to pay for proven treatments out there for pans and pandas, right? That's exactly what the bill is about, for sure. I love it. So tell us, you know, give us your daughter's story, because this is really, I think, was a turning point for you. You've been a physician for over 26 years. You've been practicing in the emergency rooms. You've seen so much. And then you had kind of the can open wide for you in your home. So let's talk about that. Sure. So I have a daughter, her name is Emma, and she's 18 now. When she was about 12, she started having some issues, came to my wife and I, my wife's a physician as well, Ellen, Mm -hmm. and came to us and said, I don't think God likes me very much. She was crying and I think I'm a bad person and was even kind of hearing voices. And then she started washing her hands until they bled and developed a lot of other OCD type things. She had insomnia, became extremely defiant. This was a girl that would lead the rest of our five children in Bible study and Mm. be kicked the door into my bedroom twice and broke the lock. So things suddenly changed and were quite severe. And I didn't know what was going on. I had been a physician for 19 years at this point. So we did what we do. My wife and I hit the books and Mm -hmm. at 1030 one night or 10 o'clock one night, my wife came to me and said, I think Emma has pandas. And I said, I don't know what that is. And but looked at the diagnostic criteria and said, sure enough, that's what she has. So I called the children's hospital and said, you know, talk to an infectious disease doctor. And I said, my daughter has pandas and I really need your help. And they said, that doesn't exist. Uh, you know, there's, that's not what this is. And so I was very frustrated. We had remembered a physician in New York that we heard speak at IFM, Institute for Functional Medicine. 
And so contacted him. I sent my daughter and my wife on a plane to see him. And he said, this is Pandas. And, you know, we had at this point ordered labs on her and done some other things that I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit in terms of an initial approach for Pandas. And ended up, he said, she needs IV immunoglobulin, IVIG. Mm -hmm. So they came back and I said, great, we have a direction to go in. So I called a pediatric neurologist. They sometimes will use IVIG for different things. And he said, your daughter sounds psychotic. Why don't you just give her antipsychotic medicine and lock her in a mental ward? Mm -hmm. Not my daughter. Mm -hmm. So we weren't about to do that. We did not give up. We don't give up. Mm -hmm. and so ended up finding someone in Illinois to give her IVIG. So I drove her up there. We had a little road trip. Mm -hmm. Four days after getting the IVIG, her symptoms were gone. Isn't that? And now, we're talking in terms here, and I shared a little bit about my story before we got on the show, but... I want to kind of slow us down just a little bit because a lot of my listeners are not understanding. Yeah. I, I had never even heard of the word pandas. And you said you were talking about, you know, washing your hands excessively. I mean, till it was bleeding. You're, you know, she was hearing things. She had the door knocking down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know at one point you talked another time about, you know, kind of obsessive things like lining things up in a line, mm-hmm. but excessively. Were there other things that she was doing that if you're a parent, you know, we might want to be taking a look at this. Sure. So if you look at the guidelines for pandas, it's one of the first things we do when patients call or come into the office. So what they've identified through the National Institute of Health, they've come up with criteria. And so basically children between the age of about three and puberty will develop usually one of two major criteria. They'll develop obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. pretty severe, will be very sudden in onset, or they'll develop restrictive eating. This usually looks like to eat or drink. It's my least favorite complaint to see come in because these kids will lose weight and sometimes end up in the hospital. But typically they will say, I feel like I'm going to choke. Mm. I can't swallow that. I'm not going to eat. Mm. It's different from an anorexia type presentation. And a lot of these kids will write so end up going to the children's hospital and getting a scope to make sure it's not a tumor or a neurologic issue or anything like that. But so one of those two things, either severe sudden onset OCD or severe sudden onset restrictive eating disorder. Okay. And then there are minor criteria. So to be diagnosed with pandas or pans, and we'll talk about the difference in a second, but to be diagnosed, typically you would have either OCD or restrictive eating or both sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you would have one of the following criteria. And so they are anxiety or depression, poor performance in school, somatic complaints. And those are things like bedwetting, losing control of urine during the daytime, a sudden onset severe urge having to go to the bathroom multiple times per hour. Once again, we check these kids for urinary tract infection, but it ends up being kind of a, a difficult. And you'll see children that are 12 years old that have been potty trained, obviously, for years that will wet their pants. You will also see pretty severe defiance, although in my personal opinion, a lot of the defiance you see is related to OCD and kids that are just terrified to do what you're asking them to do. And you will also see facial tics. So this was first identified. That's how they found the link. And so you'll see all those criteria and and a lot of times children will have all of those. Another big tip off is about 40% to 50% of these kids will have some evidence of autoimmunity on their blood work. They'll have a positive anti-nuclear antibody, which is an ANA. You'll see that sometimes with lupus or other autoimmune conditions. And so a lot of times they'll have that. And interestingly, 90% of them or so will have a parent with an autoimmune disease or a first degree relative. Mm -hmm. So once you see that 
picture. And when you've seen enough of these kids, it's really alarming. It's sudden. I know for my daughter, you know, she was my wife's best buddy. They were in bed together doing Bible study and watching TV and cutting coupons and doing things. And it was just like one day she was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Gone. And you'll hear parents say that commonly they felt like their child was gone and replaced by an alien or another child. And um, you can kind of tell when you look at pictures of these kids, you'll see a before they got sick picture and after, and they look very vacant. So that's kind of what you'll, what you'll see. Right. So PANDAS is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. It was the first thing that was found. We've known for years, sometimes after people get a strep infection, they can have an autoimmune reaction. Sometimes it can affect the kidneys, sometimes the heart, what's called rheumatic fever. And some of those folks that got rheumatic fever would get a type of a tick disorder, and it was called Sydenham's chorea. And it was a really violent, they would kind of jerk their arms or jerk their heads, have difficulty walking. And we've known, gosh, since the 18 or early 1900s, that's caused after having a strep infection. And when we also know with Sydenham's Korea from strep, these kids would also have OCD. Mm-hmm. And so people at the National Institute of Health, Dr. Susan Sweeto, put the picture together and said, you know, maybe this sudden onset thing we're starting to see with all of these other symptoms is related to strep. Sure enough, studied it and found that a lot of these kids had a strep infection or an illness right before they got sick. Interesting. So kind of put it together. She started publishing about pandas. And it was difficult for the mainstream medicine kind of to accept because a lot of kids, as we talked before we got on, a lot of kids get strep. Why don't, you know, more of them get this pandas? Right. And, you know, as we had talked about as well, we live in an increasingly toxic world. So obviously we'll talk about that in a bit about how that affects the immune system and sets these kids. After a while, they started getting some of these kids with this same syndrome, but they could never find the strep. They're doing strep tests and antibody tests on their blood and all sorts of things and couldn't find it. They started finding other things, viruses like varicella, which causes chicken pox, or they were finding mycoplasma, mm-hmm. which is another type of bacteria causes typically uh, walking pneumonia or respiratory issues. Okay. And they surmised that there were kids that it wasn't strep that was causing this. They've also think they've made a link to Lyme disease. It's kind of a weak link. We've certainly seen it in our practice, but they decided then to call it pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, which is PANS. And Taking so that's the term we have a tendency to use a lot because when we see these kids, often it's months after they've had the event, we really don't know if it was strep. And so we do a pretty comprehensive medical workup to look for other infectious diseases or other toxins and things. That's really interesting. And when we get into talking about the treatment, but you know, I think one of your big things here is there's so many different directions that we can go here right now. So we've got kids who have, but only 40% are finding that there's some sort of autoimmune deficiency within the body. That's having a positive ANA. There are other autoimmune tests that we run as well that actually look for antibodies in the blood to different parts of the brain tissue. It's a test called the Cunningham test that we run. Mm-hmm. And that will actually show antibodies in the blood to certain brain structures, which is exactly the same brain structures involved in Sydenham's chorea from strep. And we found those same antibodies positive in kids with pans and pandas. So the one that's 40% is the anti-nuclear antibody. And that's, like I said, associated with lupus and some other autoimmune diseases. But that kind of, you know, it's not something you typically find in children. So when you start seeing that, you think, wow, there's some sort of autoimmune condition going on. And then when you look for other antibodies to brain structures, 
like on the Cunningham panel, it really, that's where the pieces are all falling together and we're really finding evidence. In fact, you can do MRI and PET scans and things and see changes in the parts of the brain that cause this behavior that then go away once these children have been successfully treated. Isn't that crazy? I mean, the body is such a miraculous machine. It truly is. The more I dig into it, the more people I talk to, you know, it just is an amazing thing. So what you're saying then is every person who has PANS or PANDAS, there is some sort of immune compromising issue that's happening in their body along with the syndrome. That's right. So what we find is, so we'll also check immune globulins in children. So you can Mm -hmm. put blood tests for IgG, IgM, IgA, different immune globulins. Immune globulins are proteins that are used in different ways by your body. Each one of them is used Mm -hmm. in a bit of a different way, but they help fight infections. And a lot of times in these kids, we will find low levels of immunoglobulin or if they've been vaccinated, there are actually titers you can do to see if they have antibodies to diphtheria or tetanus, or a lot of children get a pneumococcal shot. Mm-hmm. And you can actually do look for antibody levels. And what's interesting is a lot of these children, they're not making antibodies to the immunizations and they've gotten all their immunizations, they're up to date, but they're actually have this defect in the ability to make antibodies. So it seems to go along with it when the more you measure, you start figuring out this is multiple things. It's there's something affecting the immune system. And my personal experience with that from seeing many of these children is that it's usually a toxin of some type. Sometimes you can identify it, sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. And that really guides our treatment. A lot of our treatment is focused on reducing the amount of toxic exposures that people have. Right. So, and that's one of the things that you do. Now, this, before we get into the treatment and how you guys are working with the family, because this is a family disease and, you know, we're treating the the child and, but the family it needs the treatment too, in my opinion. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. <laughs> it's a huge thing. And, you know, a lot of the information for treating pans and pandas is great. It's come out of some major academic institutions, National Institute of Health, Stanford, But the one thing, you know, and it talks a lot about antibiotic treatment or using steroids and all those things are valuable at times, or even using IVAG, but really no one talks about the family toll. And I can say, you know, I remember going through this and it was a painful time. And there were times where I would just lay at night and look at my wife and think like, she's just going to die of a broken heart over this and our other children. So we have five, blessed to have five children. And our other kids suffered as well. And they all have taken something away from that. I think it's made them a little more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Praise God. But yeah, that's it's you hit the nail right on the head. And so what we really have tried to do and are trying to do is recognize those moms. Because the hero in this situation is the mom, usually, or the dad. They were in a position where they would not give up. They got answers that they didn't think were reasonable. And most times they weren't. Mm-hmm. So I've had these folks come in. I had a patient come in about six months ago that had every symptom I described, severe sudden onset OCD. Anne had said she couldn't swallow foods. She was defiant, pretty much failed out of middle school, was wetting her pants, in horrible insomnia, which is another part of this. And she had a facial tick and they had gone in to see a physician who told them that it was stress in the parents' marriage that caused this. I mean, people already, especially moms, I've one of my patients actually wrote a great blog called It's Not Your Fault. And it's good because it's something I said to her and it's something 
thing I commonly sit down and say to moms because these poor moms will come in and, and a lot of times they've been told, you don't know what's wrong with your child. You know, there's nothing wrong. This is a disciplinary issue or your child just needs to be heavily medicated for this. Mm-hmm. You know, or we really don't know what's going on. 58% the Pandas Network, which is a great resource website with a lot of support for parents, they did a study and found that 58% of parents of kids with PANS or PANDAS had been ridiculed at some time or told that they were crazy and there was nothing wrong. And it's just, it was what happened to me. It was part of our story. And I'm a physician. right? So you can imagine, you know, I, I got that answer as a physician that it, much more so maybe that other people are getting it from physicians. And I, you know, I love medicine. I love practicing medicine in the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting. And I have such good friends who are brilliant physicians and they do a good job. But for some reason, this diagnosis, and it's, it's sort of a complicated story, but it became this controversial thing. And now, as commonly happens, <laughs> there's two camps that have developed. And fortunately, I think I sit in the camp that has most of the literature behind it. But there's a group of people that just refuse to kind of support this or support these families. And uh, you know, once you see one of these kids get better, it's, it makes everything you do worthwhile. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this is this is what led you to open up the Vine Healthcare. And you know, and I read all about this. This is a facility that you decided, you know what, I don't like the way the insurance-based medical facilities are being forced to be run. And so, you know, your words were it stops here, it stops with me. And I loved, I'm like. I got out of my chair. I'm like, yes, yes. You know, so you take a very different approach. You're still practicing traditional medicine, you know, as needed, but you're looking at the whole person. You're taking the time. I know I was so frustrated when dealing with my brother that we're talking just months, not even probably months before he passed away, you know, we had to roll him into the doctor's office and he's laying there and he, his body feels pain, but he's not being able to express the pain. And he's just not cognizant like he was, you know, he's changed because there's diseases that have passed the blood brain barrier now and they've changed his personality. Right. And the doctor's in there talking with us and we're making major decisions for how we're going forward now. And we're talking hospice care and so forth. And his office manager, whoever she was, is knocking on the door, you know, doctor, doctor. Mm-hmm you know, with her watch. And it's like, you know, bless his heart. He didn't bow down to that. And he spent as much time as we needed with him. But I know you felt that not even as a patient, but also as the doctor, right? It sure is hard. So I can tell you that there's a huge issue with burnout. Physicians now have, I think, the number one spot for suicide in the United States as a profession. And a lot of it, I think, comes from being, you know, in a model that if it's an insurance-based model, you don't, well, first of all, you are begging and pleading to get the tests as we did. The other part of our story is when we got IVIG, we had to then get it approved. And that was, I think, Ellen on the phone for six or eight hours. And as a physician, kind of arguing with the other physician to get this approved. And so, but that's a big issue. But I really, part of my heart, and I've always said that, you know, I'm interested in getting in really treating these pandas patients, but I'm also interested in treating physicians. I 
have such a spot in my heart for physician burnout mm-hmm. because a lot of us went into medicine and we were told something and I've been blessed to be in the ER for 26 years where it's the closest thing to pure medicine really I think that you can get because people come in in their most dire circumstances at times mm-hmm. and to be there and step into the gap and help them is really valuable but a lot of outpatient medicine has exactly what you said it's turned into you know to we have friends who are physicians who run their own office and they haven't taken a paycheck in five years mm. just to keep the thing running. And there's 40, 50 patients a day. And I can tell you they're the best physician can't kind of keep on top of patients and do a great job right. if they're seeing 40 or 50 patients a day. And if, if they're actually making eye contact, then they're taking their charts home and doing three or four hours of charting at night and neglecting their family. And I think that's where this comes from. And, and it sort of breeds, you know, not having enough time breeds a certain level of, you know, you have a bit of compassion fatigue after a while and it's hard. It's not good for anybody to be in that situation. So I'm super lucky to be in a practice model where I can take an hour and a half to two hours the first time I see patients and they fill out scores of paperwork before they see me because we really want to get a timeline for what's going on with the person and look for clues. Mm -hmm. And it's really what it's all about is asking the patients the right question and then actually listening to the answer. William Osler, famous physician back in the 1800s, said, if you listen to the patient, they'll tell you exactly what's wrong with them. And that's always been something I've practiced by both in the ER and in the office-based setting that really, and one of the biggest you know, when I see moms and dads come to me with these kids with pandas or even adult patients that I see, commonly they've been somewhere and people aren't listening to them or people have said, you know, you're crazy or this is all in your head or you just need, Mm -hmm. this is anxiety or let's medicate that. You know, there's times as we had talked beforehand, I'm not anti-medicine or anti-physician or Mm anti-anything, but you know, it's, you just... What really bothers me at times is I look at this and I just say, you have to pay attention. As a caretaker, whether you're a parent or a brother or a sister or a physician, you have to pay attention. And the story that you're telling has to make sense. If you have a child come in that's got facial tics and kicking the door of the house and wetting their pants at the age of 10 and having physical signs of severe OCD and anxiety, poor schoolwork where they've never had it before and it came on over a week. Mm-hmm. That's not a marital issue. It's just like, you'd have to tell yourself that story and say, does this make sense? What I'm saying even makes sense. And so it incensed me at the time. And you know, when I looked at it, I always tell that story and people will come up afterwards about my daughter and they'll say, well, yeah, that physician, he shouldn't have said it doesn't exist. Or the other physician shouldn't have said, just put her on medication. And I say, you know, that's they're not the enemy in the story. The enemy in the story is medical mediocrity. The enemy in the story is the modern medical model that leaves us in a position where we, people are afraid to be the first person to try something, even something innocuous, vitamin D or vitamin C. And, you know, I'll have studies that I present. I was at uh, presenting to um, residents a few years ago, and I happened to mention vitamin D, having a vitamin D level of 52 in your serum reduces breast cancer by 83%. There's no drug that does that. And so I presented this and I had the study up on the screen. And one of the attending physicians in the room said to me, don't you think if that was the case, everybody would be on vitamin D? And I said, I don't know. I can't govern anybody else's practice. And they really started getting me and said, you know, well, your study only had 300 patients. It should have, you know, 10,000 patients to be a large double blind placebo controlled study, at which it's all anecdotal. We've never done that study. (laughs) So, you know, you have, to, <laughs> you have to tell yourself a story that makes sense. And so for something innocuous, unless you have renal disease or, 
whatever else. Something as innocuous as vitamin D, if you're seeing, you know, benefits in fertility, mm-hmm. reduce colon cancer in men, reduce cardiovascular events and congestive heart failure. I mean, vitamin D is fantastic. It's great for the immune system. So to see something like that and kind of say, I'm going to tie my hands until I see a 10,000 patient study from the Mayo Clinic, that to me is the definition of medical mediocrity. And, you know, I've said we as physicians need to internally police that and just say, we're going to stop this. You know, we're going to stop the underpayment for visits so that we have to be in 40 patients' rooms a day. We're going to be able to have enough time. And it really is a change that comes within. And my good friend, Sachin Patel, always says something interesting. He says, the the doctor of the future is the patient. Mm -hmm. And it's something I, I think is brilliant. It's something I've seen so much with these patients. I haven't really had one patient that's come in confused about what's wrong with their child. They usually call up and say, I think my child has pandas. And 95% or more of the time, they're exactly right. And they come in with the diagnostic criteria and say, look at my child's schoolwork, look at their artwork, look at what they're doing. And I can see the child having a facial tick mm-hmm. in the room with me, mm-hmm. not making eye contact, just having this vacant stare. And so, so that's a brilliant sentiment. And so what we really try and do in our office is really partner with people. As far as I'm concerned, we're sitting at a kitchen table trying to figure out a problem, you know, just as, as if we're making blueprints to build your house or yep. playing a card game or whatever else. We Everybody has a seat at the table and you know, we collaborate with other practitioners. We just... Everybody has to have a seat at the table and we need to not make it a, you know, I'm sitting here in my white coat and I'm going to hand you a prescription and come back in two weeks if you're not better. We need to have a dialogue about it and discuss it and we need to just come from a place and really care about the patient. That's something that my residency directors and residency always said, you know, they said, beware of a patient that you don't like, you know, the patient that comes in that's drunk or disorderly or yelling at you or whatever else in the ER because you really tend to not human nature, you tend to maybe not want to give them the level of care that you would. And so I would always tell my residents at St. Francis and Georgia and Philadelphia, I've practiced, I would always tell them when that drunk guy comes in, assume it's your drunk uncle Larry, like it's your turn to take him home from the family reunion. You know, he, someone loved him when he was a baby. They were happy to take him home from the hospital. And that's really how I think you have to approach people and people that come to see us are chronically ill. They've a lot of times been to a lot of physicians. And so I always kind of let them unload a little bit, even if it's yeah. to me, it's just, you know, yeah, part of the thing. Yeah. What a fresh approach, because I know, you know, so many people that I see and that I talk to and that I deal with, they're at their wits end. They're, you know, they don't know where else to turn. They don't know where to go. And I, and I know that you're seeing that as well, that they've been you know, to, like you just said, many, many specialists. So, you know, God bless you for recognizing a need and filling it and taking on the system to say, you know what, we, we, the doctors, we've got to make a change from internally if we want this whole healthcare system to move into a different direction and move the dial. Right. I appreciate that so much. So I'd like to get in and spend a little bit more time talking because I know there's going to be some parents or grandma mother or an aunt or an uncle listening to this podcast and saying, oh my gosh, you know, my loved one has this type of thing. Now, I'm not advocating that, hey, tell us what we need to do and go out and we can treat ourselves, you know, locally. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the things that you guys will look for 
and start as like a, you know, base one, we're going to start here. If this doesn't work, we're going to move to here and to here. So what are kind of the methodologies that you work through with this? So we have a pretty similar patient approach. We sat down probably two years ago and Ellen and I sat down and said, you know what? We're having a lot of success with patients. What is it about this that's working? Kind of with the idea that at some point we may want to develop a training program to help people see because how you really have to think about it is we have this approach, we call it the fully functional approach, and our desire is to make people fully functional, their ha- most happy, joy-filled, productive self. And so it comes down to five steps, and it's almost for any illness or any problem, in fact. Okay, great. But the first step is identifying the problem, identifying what's going on. So listening to the story, if I could have nothing else but listen to the story, I mean, throw the labs away, throw the other things away. If I could just listen to the story and do a really good physical exam on the adult or the child that I'm seeing, that's invaluable. I can almost always, you know, they say you should only order lab tests to prove what you think is going on. And that's definitely the case. I can almost always tell what's going on from doing that. And that's the blessing. So identifying though has to do with the parent telling the story. And then we're super careful to repeat it back to them or the adult patient repeat their story back to them. It's their story. Mm -hmm. They know their story. I can't try and put them into a box right? um, and say, I'm going to try and jam you into the box of generalized anxiety disorder. I'm going to try and jam your child into the box of ADHD. I'm going to try and jam them into this diagnosis. So they have to tell their story. And at another brilliant attending, Kip Wanger in residency, he used to say, don't punish the patient because they can't tell you a good story. Mm. So if you have someone... (laughs) And they're not hitting everyone. You know, there was a study done not too long ago that showed about 30 to 40% of these children with Panzer Pandas didn't have a recognizable sudden onset. They may have had this staggering onset. Like they, in my daughter's case, she had this episode where she was lining things up in the grocery store. Then everything went completely away. And it was only later that she developed, like, you know, fell off the cliff with the additional. Right. And that's a pretty common story. Pans and pandas both have a waxing and waning period to them. A lot of times they'll get, these children get infection, they'll start having symptoms. And if you can treat it quickly enough or use anti-inflammatory medication or whatever, you will quell it and then their symptoms will get better until the next time because it tends to be an immune issue. So yeah, that's identifying things. So it has to do with telling a story, doing a really good physical exam, which I am super years in the emergency department, I would have a patient that I would see. And, you know, as I'm leaving the room, I would lift up the sheet and happen to look at the foot and they would have a bad infection or they would have a diabetic foot ulcer or something. And so I'm really passionate about, I always tell people we treat patients from all over the country, but I always tell them the first visit has to be in the office. I need to talk to you. I need to look in your eyes. I need to examine you. So Mm -hmm. that's the first part of identifying. And then Beyond that, then we're going to look for things. We're going to do lab testing. We're going to do some specialty lab testing. A lot of times we look at the gut microbiome, so we'll do stool testing. We will do a lot of infectious disease testing, typically test, do very sensitive tests for Lyme and other tick-borne diseases, which can cause pans. Mm -hmm. We'll, at times, if there's an abnormal neurologic exam or if the story sounds a little bit strange to me, we will get an MRI. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that needs to be done under sedation if the child's small enough but an MRI of the brain because, you know, we do a lot of revolutionary things here. We treat with a lot of nutraceuticals. We talk about diet. We talk about other things. But in the end, I always say, you know, you're doctor first. So you need to make sure that it's not anything life-threatening, not anything that would change your behavior. Right. So we will do radiology studies if we need to. We will do lab testing. We test the immune system. As I'd said, we'll test immune globulins as well. And we'll test to see if the child's had 
been able to make antibodies to any vaccinations that they've gotten because that tells us about their immune system. So that's part of the identify piece. And not all those things come back immediately. Sometimes that takes time. Mm -hmm. But while we're doing that, so step one is identify. Step two is reduce. Okay. So we need to reduce anything that is negatively impacting the child's health. So this is where we get into looking at toxins. So uh, we look at food toxins. We look at chemicals in foods. So, and it's difficult. It's really hard to restrict a kid's diet if they have restrictive food eating disorder. And in fact, there are cases where I've said to the parents, feed them what they'll eat. At this point, I want to keep them out of the hospital and not have them have to get a feeding tube in their nose. And, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of childhood disorders, if you have simple case of ADHD or insomnia or constipation with a child, a lot of times changing their diet, putting them on an elimination diet, eliminating gluten and dairy and processed foods and sugars, a lot of times it'll be totally curative. Not so much with these kids with pans and pennas, but yes, we do do our best to get them off inflammatory foods that tend to irritate the brain like gluten and dairy and processed foods and trans fats things. So that's one thing reduced. We also try and help them reduce stress. Okay. So if they're old enough, we can use things like an alpha stem, which is a type of cranial magnetic therapy that's really helpful, FDA approved for insomnia. And we also try and reduce environmental exposure. So we talk to the parents a lot about the environment. Uh, one of the things I had mentioned, I think before we got on was that there's an awful lot of these kids that end up, I think their immune issue starts when they're in a moldy house. Mycotoxins, which are the poisons made by molds, will depress the immune system. In fact, a common mycotoxin that we tend to find in these kids is mycophenolic acid. Okay. Mycophenolic acid is one of the mycotoxins that's produced by molds in in water-damaged buildings. And it is actually a drug. So mycophenolic acid is Cellcept. Cellcept is a drug that physicians give patients with organ transplants Mm -hmm. so that they don't reject the organ because it depresses the immune system. So Mm -hmm. we also will see it with heavy metals and other industrial toxins. So the talk I have with the parents is part of the identify pieces will usually check for urine mycotoxins in the children. We'll have parents test their home for mycotoxins. And also if we're suspicious or uh, something comes back, we will have the parents make sure they get a mold inspection by a qualified mold inspector whole other topic because that can be tricky. But this is part of reducing, making sure we're reducing. And we sometimes have to write notes for these children for their schools because these kids cannot sit in class. They'll have anxiety attacks. They'll have severe OCD. They'll be ridiculed by other students. Sometimes they'll have vocal tics, almost looking like Tourette's syndrome. Right. So there are times when we have to reduce school exposure. And at the end of the world, I always tell the parents that it's, you know, if they miss a semester of sixth grade, they'll make it up. Do you guys take a look at, I mean, I'm just yeah. brains rolling here. Yeah. Do you guys have them look at fragrance in the home? Oh, we sure do. We sure do. Okay. We always talk about fragrances. In fact, a lot of these children as they get older, so if you see a child with pans or pandas and they're maybe over 12 or so, a lot of them tend to develop multiple chemical sensitivities, which we see in our adult patients with both mold exposure as well as tick-borne disease. So they tend to be super. So in our office, no one, I don't wear cologne. Mm-hmm. None of our people in our office wear cologne or perfume. We all use unnatural deodorant and so limited beauty products. And we try and be really conscious of that and talk to parents about that, about things in the home, persistent organic pollutants, plastics, all of those things. Uh, we try and be really cognizant of that. But you're exactly right because those things, you know, adults or children, when they get multiple chemical sensitivities, that 
chemical sensitivity is a normal reaction, but to something benign. And we're talking about, you know, in my research, I found that, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting things that are fragrance free, not, you know, unscented is still being chemically altered Mm -hmm. to cover up the smell, you know, so, and it's in your laundry, you know, and so you're wearing that, you're covering yourself up with it. It's in the cleaning products. It's in your shampoos. It's in your lotions. It's in, it's in so many things, you know, so that they can, you know, know, Hey, go through these items because fragrance is a neurotoxin and we're dealing with a neurotoxicity Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, any kind of a toxin into the body. So Good. You're already on it. (laughs) Exactly right. So they're actually with mycotoxins. So your olfactory bulb, where you smell, uh, that is Mm -hmm. the closest peripheral nerve that goes into your brain. It's the shortest nerve to get it immediately into your brain. And so what's really interesting is in patients with dementia, older patients, the first thing they lose is their sense of smell. Mm -hmm. So we have a little canister of coffee and lemon and have them smell that when they come in. And that's one of the first things they'll lose. And in these kids, so when you see, you know, God made us so that if you go to drink a thing of milk and it's spoiled, you know, you don't kind of put it up to your mouth and smell it and then kind of say, oh, I guess that's spoiled and just kind of put it down. You have this violent reaction, this almost fight or flight, you throw it. You say, it's disgusting. I can't be near it. And what happens with multiple chemical sensitivities is that starts happening with everything. Yeah. And soon it's like, I can't go into the bank because they have an air freshener hanging across the bank. But you're right. These things are toxins. These things are affecting the immune system. And you know, not only do we have these toxins affecting the immune system, but we have so many toxins that I tell patients, your immune system's job is to test what comes into you, whether it's in your nose or in your ears, to be honest, uh, but also in, you know, things that you touch and we all day long take antigen, Mm -hmm. put them in our mouth and swallow them. Mm -hmm. And so your brain has to say, you are not you. And then it has to say it's good or bad. And if it's bad, it has to mount a response to it. And so, you know, we are so bombarded with this that your body has no choice but to just keep making immune reactions to it. So, you know, when I was young and I went into school, I could bring cookies or cupcakes or whatever. You can't now because everyone's got a peanut allergy or, you know, they have celiac disease. And these diseases, it's been postulated, it's called TILT, actually, toxin-induced loss of tolerance. The idea that all of these toxins have caused us to lose our ability to discern. And, you know, when your body's being overrun, just like if you're in a military compound, it's being overrun, you have to defend against everything. You don't have time to start out and say, who's my friend and who's not. And that's what these kids. So when we do allergy and sensitivity testing, it's amazing to me. These kids, a lot of times will have 12 food allergies and they've never had a problem their entire life, but their immune system gets so off balance. They not only have an immune deficiency, but they have this hyper immunity when it comes to foods or fragrances or air pollutants, mm-hmm. you know, markers, things they touch. We're very careful around about that in our office, having the best non-toxic things that we can find. You had time. I mean, we could do a whole nother episode on just that last little segment that you talked about, because that's what people don't understand is that there's, you know, getting toxins in the body. And yes, our body's naturally made to deplete the toxins out, you know, to get rid of them. We have great filtering systems built in, but we are overloaded Mm -hmm. and they don't understand what the body's response to that is. So you just touched on a whole nother arena there. Okay. We've gotten two (laughs) and we got to get through the last three here of your five approach, you know, so I'd, I'd like to keep going. Sure. So identify is the first. Right. 
The second is reduce. The third is optimize detoxification. So, you know, as you just said, you took my line straight out, which is we are natural detoxifiers. So we pee, poop, and sweat things out. Sleep and dreaming is a mental detox. And as you know, there are ways that you can increase your ability to detoxify. So we recommend lymphatic drainage massage to our patients as well as dry brushing. We recommend sauna to our patients. And then we take advantage of our own ability with nutraceuticals to increase our liver's ability to detox. So things like methyl sulfonylmethane or indole-3-carbinol, which are found in broccoli. Broccoli is awesome for detox. And we also use glutathione. Glutathione is particularly good if people have issues with mycotoxins from mold exposure. It really helps. You know, what you had just said was interesting about this overload, you know, working in the ear for years back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, people would die from Tylenol overdoses if they would be suicidal. They would take so much Tylenol, it would overwhelm their liver's normal ability. They would then detoxify the Tylenol level down another pathway, which would make formic acid. They'd go into liver failure and die. Well, now what we do when someone comes in, almost no one dies of a Tylenol overdose. We give them IV N-acetylcysteine, NAC which a lot of people take and NAC makes glutathione. And so if someone comes in, they they can take three bottles of Tylenol, but if you give them NAC through their IV, it'll make enough glutathione to get rid of the rest of that Tylenol. So we use glutathione. We also use some binders to help remove mycotoxins. So things like charcoal and clay, Mm -hmm. uh, chlorella, if it's from a clean source, we try not to use spirulina. A lot of that's contaminated with heavy metals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are some things that we do, optimizing detoxification. The fourth step is support. And this I think is the most crucial. So we support the immune system. One of the ways we do that is by using low-dose naltrexone. So low-dose naltrexone is something that's supplied by the compounding pharmacy and we dose it based on weight and age. And it can be used topically as well as orally. Usually we will use it orally. And so briefly, so naloxone, a lot of people are familiar with Narcan, uh, police officers and paramedics carry it. When people overdose on narcotics out of the hospital, they're given this and they immediately wake up and start breathing. It reverses all of the narcotics receptors in their bodies. Well, they it's not absorbed well orally, so they came up with naltrexone. That's used in adults to prevent opiate use disorder and also to prevent people from drinking too much alcohol. It's used in addiction treatment. Mm. But researchers years ago in small doses for adults, like four and a half milligrams, what low-dose naltrexone does is it stabilizes the immune system. It also releases natural endorphins, which helps greatly with pain. So we first started using LDN several years ago for patients with other autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, lupus, psoriasis, and psoriatic arthritis, things like this, really painful conditions, Raynaud's. And it's amazing because it would straighten out their immune system. And so it seems to work the same way in these children with pandas, which will make them in pans, they will not be as reactive to antigens and yet it will boost their immunity. So it's almost like an adaptogen you would take for your adrenal glands where if you're too high, it makes you low. If it's too low, it brings it up. Mm -hmm. So low dose naltrexone really works well. It's one of the things we do to support the immune system. We also will use medications at times to support the immune system. We try and support the body, make sure these children are getting enough nutrients, especially if they have restricted diet. Yeah. So we will try and make sure they have enough antioxidants, enough protein, vital protein is number one requirement for longevity in adults and children. So uh, protein, we'll take a look at that. And then the other piece of support is social support, support for the family. Mm -hmm. So having them talk to our health coaches, health coaches are particularly good at helping with stress reduction. So 
a lot of times, even if they're going in to see our health coach and they're not particularly modifying a whole bunch of the child's diet, it's just to let the mom or the dad kind of vent and talk and help mm-hmm. give them some solutions to help them get through it. And then finally, our fifth pillar is a personalized plan because everyone's different. It's one of the things that makes pans and pandas a little difficult to study because there are different causes. One child might have Lyme, another might have Bartonella, another tick-borne disease. Someone might have mycoplasma. Children, we've been unable to find the pathogen other than they have a whole lot of mold in their house. So that may be something itself that lends to pans that's something that we're all kind of looking at at a national level. So that's, that's our basic approach. I love that you personalized it because I've learned over the last seven years that you can't really give like, okay, this list of symptoms, because like you said, everybody could present a little bit different, but you know, obviously everybody knows their body. Everybody know, well, a lot of us know our body and we know when something's different with it. And I love that you're taking that very personalized approach because I don't think there's a one size fits all for everybody. And so many different things, this, you know, pans and pans and anything that we're dealing with. So this has been some great information. And is there anything that you want to leave us with before we close? We're going to get into how to get a hold of you, but I just want to, you know, how would you like to wrap this up as we finish? You know, we talked a lot about diet and reducing the inflammation in our body and supporting that immune system. And we didn't really get into IVIG, but I got to think that that's part of that plan, you know, of action as we go further, you know, it's just another one of the things to help support the immune system. Right. So I think what I would say to parents uh, of these kids is don't give up. Mm-hmm. Do not take an answer as being the truth. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But if something doesn't make sense to you, keep asking questions and keep looking for someone else that's going to help. It's almost like if you had someone to fix your roof and they told you something you just couldn't believe it made sense, you'd call someone else. And so don't be afraid to do that. When we first started this out, as I said, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of, so pay attention, advocate for your child. It's your right to do so. And no one should be insulted by that. If patients come to me and they mention something I hadn't thought about and I find it great. We're working together. We're a team. So find someone who's going to team up with you. That's going to listen to what you say. That's going to address your concerns. Sometimes the answer is I don't know. <laughs> and find someone who will say, I don't know. But yes, there are a lot of things you can use to help. We sometimes need to use antibiotics to treat infections or we need to use prednisone at times to help. And then other times IV it tends to reset the immune system. We really don't understand how it works. But so I would say, you know, to parents is keep the faith. There's light at the end of the tunnel. These children can get better and just it's a long road, but, you know, find someone who will support you. And for anybody else who's listening, who has a friend or family member going through this, be present, care for them, get them groceries, take the other children out. It was one of the problems that we had when we went through it. You know, when you have cancer, God forbid, people make you a Facebook page, they bring you meals, they do things. People don't know how to deal with this when you have a child that for all intents and purposes looks like they're mentally ill and is kind of scary at times. So it's hard. And, you know, I try and extend grace to that toward others, but So care for those around you. That is such good, good thoughts. And let's leave them off. So with a little bit of hope, I don't think we shared Emma's story. You know, now you said she is 18 and now she has been on varsity soccer for the last four years. 
and she just got a soccer scholarship to Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. So in next August, she'll be going to Wright State. And so you would not notice that one of the things that I'm going to do probably coming up, I'm giving several lectures to physicians in the next two months, is I'm going to put some before and after pictures in there before she got sick, while she was sick and after. And it's amazing to look at the after pictures. Even we had one just recently when she was all dressed up and going someplace, but the light is back in her eyes and she's a totally Mm -hmm. different person. You know, it's caused a little bit of issues academically. She struggles more than she did. She used to be a straight A student. She has to work for it now. Mm -hmm. But, and she also likes to talk to other kids that are going through this. I've actually put her on FaceTime when I've had a patient in the office, a child and said, Emma, tell them your story. And she'll talk to them. She likes to encourage others. Uh, Nothing is more helpful and supportive than for them to be able to talk one-on-one with each other like that. I think that is absolutely phenomenal that she's willing to do that. And so that's, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel as well. You know, she is thriving and, you know, doing so very well. That's amazing. And it has to be a very proud dad moment. Incredibly blessed that we, you know, were given the information or found the information. We were directed to the right doctors to take care of us. And then now that we've come 180 degrees and been able to, you know, not only take what was given to us, but then look at the needs of the family and add that into our treatment program as well. I just really, I enjoy going to work every day and helping these families. And I can see, I don't care if you say you're just getting over being ill yourself. You look fantastic and you can see the compassion in your heart. Now, for those of the listeners that want to get a hold of you, I've got the www.vinehealthcare.com. Vine, that's V-I-N-E, healthcare.com. We are on Facebook with Healing Pans and Pandas. It's a group page, right? Or is it a page? That's a page, although okay. uh, we're planning the first half of this year in establishing some private groups for parents to offer support information and probably will even have a portion of the program that's virtual office hours where Dr. Allen or I can sit down with them and answer questions just like we're doing now. Live. I love that. I love that. And then you said you guys just got a uh, page on Instagram and that's Pandas Docs. Is that, did I write that down? Pandas right? Docs. Okay. Yeah. At the Pandas Docs. That's right. We just started that within this week. So there's not a whole lot of content on there, but you know, everybody's differently. Some people gravitate to Instagram, some to Facebook, and we're really passionate about getting the message out. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. I thank you for sharing your powerful story. And you can just tell you're really wanting to make a difference in the world. So we appreciate all your insight and wisdom and education. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Toxin Terminator. And we hope we've helped you remove the hidden toxins in your life for renewed health. If you're looking to continue your journey towards full rejuvenation, reach out to Amy directly by visiting amycarlson.com for your own one-on-one chat session, as well as your free toxic risk assessment. That's A-I-M-E-E carlson.com. And remember, you are just one small change away from renewed health.